This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 52 of Inside COVID-19. I expect you'll notice a change in this episode as we've shortened the interviews and with it the length of the podcast. The full interviews, though, that are featured here are available separately on the biznews.com website or app. In this episode, South Africa's supplementary budget quantifies the cost to taxpayers of the pandemic at a net 341 billion rands. We'll examine the why, what and where to from here with contributions from Finance Minister Tito Mboweni, National Treasury Director General Dondo Mogajani and Stanlib Chief Economist Kevin Lings. Also in this episode, another kind of quantification, this time from Vitality's Wellness Chief, on how exercise habits have changed in the lockdown. And we'll hear from the professor who is leading the local testing of Oxford University's coronavirus vaccine. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. In today's COVID-19 headline, South Africa's Finance Minister Tito Mboweni disclosed in Parliament today that the country's forecast tax revenue for the current fiscal year has dropped by a quarter, or around 300 billion rands, from 1.4 trillion to 1.1 trillion. This is a direct result of the economic sterilization that was caused by the lockdown. A chunk of COVID-19's immediate bill of 145 billion is being financed through reallocation of departmental budgets, but there will still be a 43 billion rand spending overrun for the government's financial year to end February. Mboweni says the result will be a budget deficit for the country, equivalent to 14.6% of its GDP, while debt will balloon from an expected high of 71%, to almost 90% of GDP at its peak in 2023. We've got lots more on that story coming up. The rapid spread of the virus in South Africa continues with a record 111 deaths on Tuesday, the first time daily mortalities have gone into triple digits. It was also the ninth highest of any country in the world on the day, also the first time the country has featured in the global daily top 10 of mortalities. Total South African deaths to COVID-19 now stand at 2,102. Fresh confirmed cases in the country exceeded 4,000 for the fourth successive day, with Tuesday's 4,500 new infections the sixth highest of any country on earth, behind Brazil, the US, India, Russia and Mexico. Global cases are continuing to grow with more than 100,000 mortalities now in Latin America, with a further 1,364 on Tuesday taking Brazil to almost 53,000 alone. Mexico, Peru, Chile and Ecuador are all among the world's 20 hardest hit countries in terms of total mortalities. A second wave of COVID-19 is now firmly entrenched in the United States, with coronavirus numbers there accelerating and reaching new daily highs in a number of states, including Texas and Arizona. 
The surge in infections hit the U.S. stock market, which lost almost 3% on concerns that the promised economic and social revival may be further away than previously thought. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. When presenting the coronavirus-instigated supplementary budget today, South Africa's Finance Minister Tito Mboweni delivered the shock news that National Treasury has calculated the COVID-19 pandemic is going to cost the country a net 341 billion rand. That's way above what economists were expecting, and it's the equivalent of around a quarter of every rand that had been expected in tax collections this year. That means that this year's budget deficit, in other words, how much spending by the state is going to exceed the income that it gets in, will rocket to more than 14.5% of the GDP. That's over double the previous worst deficit that was recorded as a result of 2008's global financial crisis. Mboweni spoke at some length about the ever-widening jaws of what he calls the National Financial Hippopotamus, where the top jaw, government spending, keeps rising, and the bottom one, tax collections, continue falling. The only way to fill this gap is through borrowing, which are already at almost 70% of GDP, far too high for a country like South Africa. In his speech today, Tito gave us some perspective. We have accumulated far too much debt. This downturn, severe as it is, will add more to the debt. This year, out of every rand we pay in tax, 21 cents goes to paying the interest on our past debts. This level of indebtedness condemns us to ever higher interest rates. If we reduce this debt, we will reduce interest rates for everyone and we will unleash investment and growth. So today, Madam Speaker, with an eye on the future, we set out a strategy to build a bridge towards recovery. Our Herculean task is to close the mouth of the hippopotamus, that gap between revenue and the ever-increasing expenditure. This hippo is eating our children's inheritance, and we have to do all that we can to close its mouth. This is our Herculean task. So what exactly is being done to address this Herculean task? At the media conference after the speech, National Treasury's Director General Dondo Mogajani shared the plan. We went to Cabinet and Cabinet gave us the go-ahead. We had two options. Either we go with the passive scenario or the active scenario. In the passive scenario, that's when we'll be talking about the sovereign debt crisis. Because in 23-24, this debt to GDP was going to hit 106%. And that means we'd have been in trouble. So the passive scenario was not good for South Africa, it's bad for South Africa. Because in there you had unsustainable debt levels, you had expenditures that's hitting the roof, you will not be able to manage our public finances. But with the active scenario, that's where debt stabilized at 87%. 87.4% in 23-24. And that's where we become responsible public finance managers to ensure that we approach 
the burden that you want to place on future generations and approach that very carefully. Whilst doing that, ringing in expenditure and closing the mouth of this hippopotamus. As to what are we doing with the supplementary budget? We are approaching very responsibly. We are recognizing that tax revenues have declined significantly. We are recognizing the economy has not been performing. We are recognizing that COVID and the implications only, and not only COVID, by the way, let me remind everyone that the downgrade itself had its own challenges by Moody's. So all of this as a package of challenges, we are putting a package of responses together. And we know, obviously, in three to four months now, we'll obviously go to the medium-term budget policy statement in October and review some of the things and actually ensure that we're building this bridge towards what essentially should be a very, very tough budget of 2021. The new realities are as follows. The COVID implications. We will need to boost the tourism sector, clearly. We will need to boost the agricultural sector in a big way. We will need to build infrastructure from scratch. We will need to have to make sure that SARS is able to reposition itself in collecting more taxes. Because in this period, with the capacity that SARS has lost, we also picked up that tax avoidance has increased. So we have to make sure that we play a much bigger role and support SARS and many other interventions, whether you look at the transport sector, rail, ports, all the items that we mentioned in the infrastructure space symposium yesterday. So we will have to reposition these spending areas in those areas that will actually lead us to growth. And the last point, we are not forgetting the growth paper that was a, started as a so-called Tito paper, treasury paper, and finally became a treasury, I mean a government paper that's backed by cabinet. In that paper, towards an economic growth strategy for South Africa, in there there are elements that remain relevant and key in terms of taking our structural reform agenda process forward. And between now and February, we really need to accelerate. And that's why I think I re-emphasize the point that the minister made, that the deputy minister is going to lead this area of work in the Vulindela office within the ministry that actually looks at this, how to unlock certain areas, whether it's departmental engagements, whether it's sector engagements, whether it's private sector, etc. Because this ultimately is the solution for South Africa. Borrowing more is not the solution. Cutting more is not the solution. The solution lies in us growing the economy, ensuring that our growth agenda is enhanced. So that's the solution. Growing, growing, growing the economy of South Africa. Thank you. Finance Minister Tita Mbuweni presented his supplementary budget today. It is a bridge between the February budget and the medium-term budget that comes in October. I got hold of Kevin Lings, who's the chief economist at Stan Lib. Kevin, with today's supplementary budget, we were told that there's an undershooting of 300 billion rand in the tax receipts and that there's another 40-odd billion rand that needs to net, that needs to be paid. So... Net-net, South Africa is going to have to find 350 billion rand to fight the COVID-19 virus. Is this the kind of number that you had in mind? So that's way worse than what we were expecting, and I think what most people were expecting. I didn't expect a revenue shortfall that went out to 300 billion. That would suggest that every area of tax revenue is well behind and that all the areas are falling substantially further than what would have been envisaged by any scenario, I would say, in the private sector. Obviously, 
We do know that things like tax revenue for alcohol, cigarettes, that's all we know that's behind. We know that's behind. But clearly, corporate tax is a big risk because obviously over time, corporates will make less profits and therefore the tax receipts will dwindle there. We're not importing as much. The import duties come under pressure. We're not spending as much in the shops, so VAT comes under pressure. So, yep, that's what the minister's saying, 300 billion tax revenue shortfall. Obviously, we can't make that up. That's impossible, which means that government spending has to be reprioritized to some extent, but you can't reprioritize that much. So ultimately, government's going to have to borrow the shortfall. And so government's deficit goes to 14.6% of GDP. And if you think every 1% of GDP in South Africa is roughly 50 billion, just to get an order of magnitude in your mind, that's a huge amount of money that government now has to borrow uh, that we weren't uh, banking on at the time of the February budget. So clearly that's going to shoot government debt up dramatically and the minister saying government debt is now going to 81% of GDP and just a year ago it was 63% and 63 quite frankly was already exceptionally high so 81% for a country like South Africa is extraordinary so clearly COVID doing a lot of damage but we were under pressure to start with so to go into COVID from a point of weakness clearly made it a whole lot worse. So it's a huge job ahead. Time's not on our side. Literally every month that rolls past that we've got no growth, no jobs, no tax collection, this situation's just going to get worse. So I thought he, he came across as being very clear that this is a crisis. I'm hoping that it does galvanize political action and it does result in real genuine reform. And clearly what it does set up is that by the time we get to the medium-term budget in October, there has to be a very clear road to implementation of many of these types of reform initiatives. Uh, otherwise, uh, it's hard to imagine that South Africa starts to turn the situation around. So it's a difficult time. The DG of Treasury said that in 2021, it would be set up for a really tough budget at that stage. What would a really tough budget be? This adjustment, uh, supplementary adjustment, is to really just to, to get past the immediate problem, and that is how do you adjust for the loss of revenue in terms of additional borrowing? How do you adjust for some additional expenditure? Beyond that, this is not doing much more. It is, of course, laying out uh, the problem ahead, and that's got to clearly be articulated much further in the October medium-term budget. Then you've got to get to a point where you're willing to implement these reforms. And for government, that means things like no increases. So you start to then, at every government level, allocate a zero increase and simply saying to each government department that you have to re-prioritize. You have to have a firm control on employment. So that means that you allow for natural attrition and you cannot employ additional people unless it is absolutely urgent. In other areas, you're going to have to look to consolidate departments, consolidate functions, particularly within the broader SOEs. There are way too many SOEs. You're going to have to look at how you get rid of non-strategic assets, how you engage more firmly with the private sector. So there's a whole range of things that would come into play if you're going to get really serious about this. There's no doubt that the government is too big for the economy. And in addition to that, the activities that it's undertaking are not generating economic growth. So it has to change the size, uh, essentially get out the way, make itself 
smaller, be less involved, be more strategically involved perhaps, but less involved. And the second thing is make sure that where it does get involved, it's a lot more efficient, a lot more productive, and therefore it contributes a lot more to the economic performance of the country. These are the highlights. To hear the full interview, download the biznews.com app, which you'll find in the Apple and Android or Google app stores, or on biznews.com. Inside COVID-19 from Biznews. Dr. Masima Mabunda is the Head of Wellness at Vitality. It's been an interesting time during lockdown, Masima, given that many people are sitting at home. You've got the data. Are we all becoming couch potatoes or is there an uptick in the physical activity? It is an interesting time indeed. Since the government announced lockdown, we have definitely seen a decline in physical activity as we had expected. I mean, if you think about the implications of the lockdown, gyms closed, mass events were banned. So the ways that people were used to being physically active were no longer there. I'll give you just a high level overview of the numbers that we've seen since lockdown. So pre the national state of emergency, when everyone knew about coronavirus, but we hadn't realized the extent, we started seeing a decline of minus 12 percent in physical activity. As soon as the president declared a state of national emergency, we saw a further decline of 18 percent in physical activity. And since lockdown, obviously, because then the measures were put in place to limit options that members had to be physically active, we saw a further decline of 55 percent. Wow. So, so the changes have impacted how members were getting active. Masima, just unpack that for us. 55%. So was that during the time that we weren't allowed out of our homes? Absolutely. Spot on. Absolutely. So a combination of limited options and restricted movement has led to that. So that is the earliest step in March, you would remember, where the mandate was stay at home and do not get out, let alone exercise. So did many people take up the opportunity of exercising online? So you raise an interesting question. So the beauty about the program that we've built and how we've entrenched physical activity is people wanted to exercise. And you would have picked up the pressure out there in the media for the government to consider. So what we did, which is a trend across the globe, is we provided virtual options for members to exercise. I'll give you an example of some of the initiatives that we did in the uptake. We launched Vitality at Home. I mean, the name resonated with how members were engaging with our program, which was a tailored program to allow our members and the rest of South Africa to remain healthy and active while at home. One of the initiatives we launched with Vitality at Home is Jono's e-fitness faculty, which is powered by Vitality. And in there, we want to help families stay active. So you will see with Jono in that activity targets from children all the way through to adults, because physical activity is important cuts across all ages. And what Jonah does is he's got sessions throughout the day from the morning and he's got another one in the afternoon. We subsequently also added on-demand videos where we partnered with Virgin Active to make exercise available online. And the uptake there has also been phenomenal. And seeing that, I think a lot of businesses in the fitness industries innovated and allowed their trainers to create Zoom sessions for their members to continue training. So the examples on the uptake and virtual exercise options are just numerous, but it is just a testament of, of how we've entrenched physical activity in people's lives and people actually realizing that physical activity is important for their health and well-being. You've got amazing data at Discovery and at Vitality. How have you seen 
the correlation or inverse correlation between people who are exercising and how COVID-19 is affecting them. So interesting you'd mentioned that we recently published the Risk Resilience Index. And in there, what has become quite apparent is the protective effect of physical activity. We've seen definitely that for those members that are physically active, there is a reduction in COVID-19 related hospitalization risk, a reduction of up to 11%. So in essence, what one is seeing is potentially physical activities able to offset some of the risks that are inherent in age and chronic diseases. Are you seeing that many of your members are changing habits for the better, given the amount of information that's going through now to say that the healthier you are or the fitter you are, uh, the less chance you've got of actually succumbing to this awful virus. So what we see, which is rather interesting, but I guess could be expected, is those members with devices, the wearable risk trackers, have managed to maintain being physically active more than any other cohorts. And I guess for them, it talks to the fact that most of what they would be doing would be outdoors and they're actually able to track, which is why we've actually done a campaign to increase access to wearable devices because we see that those members with devices continue to sustain physical activity. And to end on a happier note, South Africa today kicked off the first human trial for the COVID-19 vaccination that has been developed by Oxford University's Jenner Institute. It's also being trialled simultaneously in the UK. Dean of Witz's Faculty of Health Sciences, Professor Martin Veller, told our BizNews colleague Linda van Tilburg that the trials will take place in COVID-19 hotspots with healthy South Africans selected as volunteers. In this interview, Professor Vela also discusses the impact of the rising number of cases in Gauteng, where hospitals in the province are filling up fast. We are well aware of how important it is that the Global South is involved in all of these trials. The, the, the one reason that you've indicated is, is that it does give us access to these medications, and that's something that we learned in the early HIV days, that one had to be really actively involved to be able to be able to present those kind of therapeutic options to our patients. The second is obviously is is that we do know that there are variations in terms of response to various interventions, pharmaceutical and vaccines across the world, and that one needs to test across a, a wider spectrum of people than what one normally would do. And clearly there's a, a richness of the information that if one is doing the study outside of the UK. And in fact, I understand that the study is going to be done in Brazil and in the UK as well. So it is to look for that broader view. And then there's the one other area, which is, is a small part of this trial, but which is an important one from our perspective. And that is, is what happens to an HIV infected population or, an eight, or a population living with HIV. As you know, about 15% of our South African population has HIV. We do need to understand the safety of this vaccine in an HIV population and also its effectiveness. And therefore, a small part of the study is going to be that. We have very active vaccinologists. I mean, so Shabir Mahdi, who's the lead investigator, and this is a person who's worked in the vaccine field over a long period of time, has been very involved in the development of vaccines and in the innovative use of vaccines, particularly in under-resourced environments. 
when would it be able to be given to a large population if it works? Even if we have a very early answer, you know, let's say in the next three or four months, there's still a significant period beyond that. And certainly even these people who are working on the trials are saying that it's highly unlikely that we're going to have a vaccine before the latter part of next year, although there are people who are, are, are obviously pushing, which then really asks us, why, why is one chasing a vaccine? And, and, and the, the, the answer to that is quite simple, is this virus going to be around with us for many years to come? And can we look at generally just at COVID-19 and what is happening with the pandemic in South Africa at the moment? It seems that cases are increasing. Are we at the peak? What is happening in the Gauteng area where you are? We undoubtedly, both in Gauteng and in the Eastern Cape, in a very significant upswing. We've also had quite a substantial increase in numbers in the last week. I mean, so South Africa this morning was at 106,000 infections and 24,000 roughly in Johannesburg, or at least in Gauteng. So we, we yeah, clearly are going up and we're going to be going up quite steeply in the next bit of time. What I'm hearing on the ground in, in terms of hospitals is the hospitals in Gauteng are filling up. My understanding is, is that there is a fair amount of stress still in the Western Cape, but they seem to have generally coped, although they've had to you know, go into resources outside of the traditional base. I'm hearing that the, the hospitals here in Gauteng are, are such that they're not going to be able to take a massive additional load. That's not factual information, but hearsay. And then the the one area that we do know that there are problems already is in the Eastern Cape, where um, you know the, the facilities are substantially less, much fewer hospitals, much fewer ICU beds. And I've certainly seen one of my co-deans making serious pleas that the broader health system in the Eastern Cape comes together to work together in order to cope with what sounds like quite a significant crisis. Where are we expecting peaks? I mean, certainly the modelers that, that are working within our faculty and our university and in other parts of the country think we're still going, that we're a longish way away from a peak. We, we certainly are going to be in for a run of four to six weeks. The only thing that I think might be helpful is, is that we probably have underestimated the number of people who are infected in this country. Shabir Mahdi, he and I have been interacting quite a bit. He's convinced that we probably have 10 times as many people infected in this country than is actually recorded. And that, that's you know, not that surprising. Firstly, we know that we don't know what the asymptomatic infection rate is in this condition. And I mean, I don't think anybody really knows it in the world. But the other is, is that you know, the, the sudden, very significant upswing in terms of infections in Gauteng means that there's a base that is probably significantly underestimated. It's not because people are wanting to underreport. It's just that we're not we're not testing enough, I think, and I I think we may well be dramatically underestimating the amount of asymptomatic infections. This has been episode fifty-two of Inside COVID nineteen. Thank you for being with us. I'm Alec Hogg. Until Monday, cheerio.
This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.